If you're visiting with us today, we're exploring the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Sunday three of uh, working our way through Matthew chapter five. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter five, and we're going to be looking this morning from verse 21 onwards. Uh, and I'm just going to read that out uh, this morning, and then we're going to get, uh, and again, if you've missed the last couple of Sundays, I'll just help you understand the context of what's going on here in a second. But this is the passage that we're looking at. You have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there on the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So what's going on here? Because <laughs> there's a whole lot of contextual stuff that's going on. But just before we jump into this uh, passage itself, I just want to remind you again, especially if you've missed a Sunday, that Jesus is talking to the poor in spirit. He's talking to those that carry grief. He's talking to the humble. He's talking about those to those who are passionate for change and for social justice. He's uh, speaking to the merciful and the peacemakers. He's speaking to ordinary Christians in this day and age. He's talking to ordinary people who uh, think they're a bit ordinary. And, and Jesus is always, God's amazing like this. He's always picked ordinary people. He doesn't pick like celebrities normally. He's got no problem with celebrities. I've got to humble themselves a lot to follow Jesus. Uh, the, when you choose to follow Jesus, it's choosing to walk through a doorway of humility into this life of humility, following the humble God that created us. But he's really, he's always used least likelies and broken and, and messed up people, which is super encouraging, especially if you're a pastor. Uh, but for all of us, it's super encouraging. And so this is who he's talking to. So that's what we explored in week one. The Beatitudes speak to this upside down kingdom where... It's not about power or wealth or position. It's about a, a lowness of heart. And he turns the whole kingdom upside down. From the kingdom of Caesar to the kingdom of God, it's an upside down kingdom where it's the meek, it's the merciful, it's the pure in heart. They are the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then he calls all of those broken, ordinary people to be salt and light, which we looked at last week. Uh, Bruce is doing a good job of that. He's showing us all up a little bit. Just, you know, oh, sheesh, mate, chill out. You know, <laughs> he's smashing it, you know. And, uh, you know, what, all you guys, we're called to be salt and light and, and we're trying to live that out, right? To have a distinctive flavour, to have a, a, a difference about us and our posture of our heart and our character because we follow Jesus. Uh, he's saying that he hasn't come to um, abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law of the prophets, which we looked at last week. So he's the climax. He's the full revelation of what God's heart was all about. And uh, so this whole sermon is calling us to flourish 
now. The kingdom of heaven is now. What does it look like to live in this kingdom now? And he's about to use a bunch of different examples, six of them, but he's talking about the here and now. What does it look like to flourish as a human now? So Jesus then goes on to unpack six different examples about how we can live a deeper, more Christ-like way. And these are called the antitheses. Now we're going to look at, I think we're just looking at one today, are we? Sheesh. The first one takes a while, and all the commentators took a while, then the rest of them we can rip through a little quicker. So we're going to spend all of our time looking at the first one, but it sets us up for the rest of them, okay? So this is all about murder <laughs> and anger and all that sort of stuff. Um, but let, I've, let's jump into a commentary straight away. Scott McKnight, um, do you want to whack up this slide, cast with the next uh, thing on here? So this is what Scott McKnight is saying. He's written an amazing commentary on this. He, he says this, Here begins the first of six antitheses, and this is a word describing the you have heard, but I say to you statements that Jesus says. The emphasis here is on Jesus' antithetical relationship to what his Jewish listeners had heard. Who's already tuned out? That's all right. In each antithesis, Jesus quotes Scripture, but then Jesus' antithetical relationship is not against the Scripture itself, but the interpretation of the Scripture. So Jesus actually probes behind the Scripture into the intent of God. Each of these elements is important, so it deserves repetition in simple form. Jesus quotes from the Bible. He then interprets, extends, or counters that quotation, but his opposition is against how that Scripture has been interpreted. And then he probes behind what is God's heart or mind here, and then he reveals it to show us how we are to live. And so everything Jesus is saying here is saying, like, this is how, this is my heart. This is how I want you to live. And uh, so then we have it, and this is what Scott McNark has called this ethic from above that comes to show us how to live. He reveals the fuller expression of God's will for God's people. And in this text, the prohibition of murder is the surface expression of a deeper divine intent. That God's people aren't to be angry with one another. And if one uh, masters one's anger, murder will never occur. So like we're called, this whole thing that Jesus is going to start talking to us about, is like what does it look like for us to live radically differently to how our culture still to this day operates. It's a radically different lifestyle, uh, but it's the future breaking into the present. It's the age to come breaking in now. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that heavenly reality is breaking into the present when God's people say, I want to follow your ways. So Jesus is saying this is what God's desire is. Uh, in Jesus, we see God clearly. We see God's heart clearly. And there's so many, it's really important we understand this. Again, I've mentioned this last week. The Bible isn't a flat text. It's the words of Jesus that trump every other verse in the Bible. That's why he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say, because people were taking scriptures and justifying behaviors that were not in the heart of God. And to this day, people still do that. There are people out there who still justify war and murder through Old Testament passages, but Jesus has said, you've heard it said, I say. It's a whole new way of operating. Jesus, we have to take it. That's why in this church, we're gonna look at the words of Jesus primarily in our sermons, because he's the one we're following. And so Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
This is why we take it seriously. Colossians 2.9, For in Christ is all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. Listen to this. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. That is who is speaking to us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big deal. So the law and the prophets have their place and He hasn't come to abolish them. He's come as the fulfillment of them. Okay, so, uh, and then again, sorry, this last one's key as well. And we know and rely on the love of God Uh, love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. John, just quickly, this is a little tangent, but John's gospel was the latest gospel written in terms of date. So he had the longest amount of time to reflect on the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. He had the most developed theology And he had also spent the longest of all the gospel writers with the living presence of God in prayer, just drawing near to God. And so John has some statements that some of the other gospel writers don't have, including this, which is the apex of all theology, God is love. Everything has to be filtered through that. So it's really important we understand that, particularly when we look at a few verses in this passage. So let's unpack this uh, bit by bit. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So he addresses his people and says, not only is it not right to murder someone, but I'm going to lift up that bar a few clicks and say, if you've uh, got murder Uh, in your heart, there's this anger in you, then you're subject to that same judgment. It's like, whoa, huge bar that just got lifted. Now, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm really grateful for the cross. I've been studying this a lot, and I'm like, oh boy, this is a high standard. Back to the table. (laughs) So, you know, we're all hypocrites in transition here. So, this isn't to make anyone feel stink, but God's desire is that we would flourish. And so, He wants us to deal with some of this stuff. Now, who's going, man, like, why are they not even translating the word raka? Like, that must be a super naughty word if the commentators are all like, ooh, let's just leave it in there like that. Basically, raka means um, you're a moron. Uh, And what's interesting is that the word, though, that's more explicit is the word fool that Jesus used later. That's more offensive to the original listeners than this rucker thing, which is like, you're a bit of an idiot, a bit of a moron. The fool thing, like, and again, in Jewish culture, that was like the biggest insult you could ever give anyone, that they're foolish. Um, And so you can drop any, any naughty word you want to replace that because it's a violence in our heart towards somebody else. So Jesus is like, man, when you're like, it's not just getting literally a gun or a knife and stabbing somebody or shooting someone. It's like, you know, when this person cuts you off on the motorway or is driving 40 and clearly in a 50 zone, you know, there can be naughty words that, you know, sort of generate in your heart. And it's like, hey, you know, man, there's a bit going on here. Uh, and then uh, he calls us to this higher place. 
And again, the reason, and we're going to tap into this all the way through, is because he doesn't want us to cause harm or pain to anybody else. And even if it's not a physical pain, and even if they're not even there, there's a pollution to our own soul that happens when we have just dark thoughts about other people, even if we've never met them before because they're in the car ahead of us, you know? So there's this thing of like, that is a person that God's created. It's the, they're made in the image of God. They're precious to God. And so God's like, I want to, now I'm a plank eye, crikey, mate. You can, I can barely move with the, the plank's going to be banging you all as I look around today. But it's like, certainly in the car. But uh, he, wants to, he wants us to uh, not cause harm or pain to one of his creation, even if we never meet them. And so he's like, if you say these violent words towards others, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Ho, 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 ho. Okay. Like, sheesh, Jesus, chill out. What on earth is going on here? Now, you know how Scott McKnight was saying that there was a wrong interpretation of the Bible, which had got the religious leaders of the time into a bit of a pickle? We can fall in the same trap when we read that line there. And here's why. is because we look at that word hell after 2,000 years of church history, uh, I've got so much to say on this. I've got, to, I've got to really try and watch myself in terms of time. When Jesus says it, he's actually, there's a whole lot of, church, of, of biblical history around the word hell, which is actually the word Gehenna here, that is loaded up in the hearer's mind when he says Gehenna, which is vastly different to what we hear when we hear the word hell. Uh, in the early church, there were three understandings of uh, hell, the afterlife. One uh, was eternal conscious torment. Uh, and that is, and again, when we're talking about hell, we're talking about the nature of the soul. So is hell, is our souls like a rock with nerve endings that for eternity God would punish and cause suffering to? The second view was uh, what's called annihilationism. Uh, and that is the understanding like that our souls is like a, a bit of paper, that it can perish, it can, be, it can cease to exist. And then the third view was restorationism or universalism, where one day all will be redeemed uh, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, which has got some bad press in recent uh, times because of Rob Bell and a few other people. But, uh, but interestingly, in the early church, those were three just commonly held views in a number of theological schools. And the eternal conscious torment one was the minority view. Uh, but St. Augustine was, was in favour of that. And St. Augustine kind of won the day. And then in the Middle Ages, Dante's work and the church kind of jumped all over this literal eternal conscious torment thing. And fast forward to Pentecostalism, where it's been a pretty helpful tool in terms of motivation for evangelism and that sort of stuff. Uh, and so we read it with all of that. And then Jesus says something when there's all, and Gehenna there had had some history around child sacrifice. Gehenna was a physical place so in Jerusalem where a rubbish dump kind of was constantly burning. And Jeremiah had some prophecies around uh, Gehenna. And then Jesus says Gehenna in this context, and uh, there's like it's like oh he's not talking about the afterlife here. He's talking about the present. This is key. Now, I'm going to unpack that in a second, but one of the things that I want in this church is we've got this value depth, which says we're going to go there on the difficult subjects. 
because uh, this is a big one. For most millennials or my age and young, and, and maybe for most of us, but certainly there's people that will not darken the door of a church because they're like, how could you follow a God that tortures people forever? It's like, it's a big deal. And so, and hell's a, it's a big, like you've got to wrestle with it if you want to love the Lord with all your mind. It's a huge theological thing. So I've spent 15, 16 years like reading, I'm going long, 18, I was at, well, you know, I was at Bible college when I started, 18 years ago, I started kind of going, well, I've got to look at this and I've got to get my head around it because I thought God is love. How, how does it work, you know? Um, so we're going to go there on these subjects. It's not easy. We're going to go there uh, because we've got to go there and I haven't been a senior pastor before so I'm like, so I get to just choose what we look at. We're going to look at this stuff because it's like, <laughs> Because everyone's asking the questions, right? So here's the thing. Um, and so, uh, but here's the key thing I've got to underline. We've got to grow up as a church, capital C, around being able to sit together and disagree on some stuff. So the, this is why on our church website for Bay Vineyard Church, the thing that is our statement of faith is the creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. That is the, that, that they are hills I will die on. Die on. They are absolute hills we will die on. That is a non-negotiable. That is our statement of faith, and that's what keeps us orthodox as followers of Jesus. The rest of it we can debate and we can wrestle with. Not in, uh, I'm hugely influenced by, by this guy, Bruxy Cavey, and his church, The Meeting House. I'm going to introduce you to him in a second because he's, he's lent into this hard where he's like, where Jesus' longest prayer was a prayer for unity in the church and not a secular form of unity. This is all quoting Bruxy. A secular form of unity says that if you believe this, this, and this, and this, you can be part of our club. But if you don't, you're not. That is not a miraculous form of unity. That is a secular form of unity. You join Greenpeace, and if you believe this, this, and this, you're part of the Green Tree, you know, uh, Peace tribe. If you like Trump, you're probably not going to be in the Greenpeace tribe because of the Paris Accord and all the stuff he's thrown out the door, right? So this, but we are the church, and we are unified under Jesus Christ. And we are called to love him with all of our minds and wrestle with the scriptures. And the early church and the, for 2,000 years, people have done that and, and done that. Like, I think you're really wrong as I look at this. But we don't separate because of that. We are held together by these creeds and under the lordship of Jesus. And so we can have a radical, miraculous unity here on all sorts of stuff. So I have, a the, I have developed the theology of hell for me personally, in terms of where I land on this. Even though Jesus isn't talking about the afterlife here, he said the word, which has triggered a few things. So I've got a personal thing, which I'm not gonna share with you today, but we may in time. But there's three views and there's a lot of nuance around all of those. And so it doesn't matter what view you have, you can be in Bay Vineyard Church. If you disagree with me, no problemo. But I'll be gutted if you left this church because you disagree with where I sit on it. Because we want to come together under the creeds and we're unified under Jesus, a miraculous unity on all sorts of things, okay? Now, um, but uh, what I would like to do is give you some homework uh, because we, don't, we aren't going to spend this whole sermon looking at the subject of hell. And so Braxy Cavey has got outstanding talks, two of the best talks I've ever heard on the subject, and I want us to engage with it as followers of Jesus rather than just stick our head in the sand and hope for the best, which isn't good theology. Now, here, now you don't have to take your phones out because what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it on our secret Facebook group. Um, and so if you're on that, then I'm going to post them after the service. 
and I'd love you to, to listen to them. If you're not on our secret Facebook group, I've got a sign-up. I'm so organised. I'm very, I'm very proud of myself. I'm not normally this organised. I've actually got a sign-up sheet uh, where if we, I will email you the links to these talks. And, uh, and if you would like to join our secret Facebook group, which is where we do banter and we're like, hey, you know, who's got a spare fridge I could borrow? Let's pray for Bruce. So it's a lot of, lot of fun on there. Uh, but you can, I'll send you the link to that as well. Is that all good? So uh, that's the homework, uh, which is big, but they're great talks and I'd love you to listen to them. Um, And if you want to go hard out, there's a book that's been very influential in some of my thinking called Who Gates Are Never Shut by Brad Jusak, and uh, you can look at that. uh, Or Brian Zahn's written some interesting stuff called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Um, And yes, anyway, I don't actually agree with them on some stuff, (laughs) but uh, yeah, anyway, it's good. All right, so anyway, Brad Jusek, though, explains Gehenna in the context of what we're talking about um, like this. Gehenna is about us here and now, just as the kingdom of heaven even now is even now among us and within us, breaking into and flowing out through our lives in space and time. So too the awful reality of Gehenna. As the kingdom of God is with us, in us, and among us, so is the awful reality of Gehenna manifesting in the tragic twists and turns of our lives and the gnashing sorrow in our hearts. Jesus is saying this. If you choose to outwork your anger in in wrong ways, you'll experience Gehenna in the presence. And I have. Like, I believe that. When Jesus was pointing to Gehenna, it was a place they all knew about. And it was an image, it was a metaphor for what you experience in the present when you choose not to live the way of Jesus. And he longs for us not to experience Gehenna. That's his cry of his heart, is that we would not experience the pain of broken choices outside the way and will of God. So when he says, and we looked at this last week, the you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven if you don't do this stuff. It's the kingdom of heaven now. We don't have to worry about murder in the age to come. That's stupid theology. Secondly, we don't have a works theology that says I've got to behave myself to go to heaven. The cross is taking care of it. So you've got to get your theology together when you're reading these things. And so you've got to get smart about when you read the Bible. When you see the word hell, all sorts of stuff gets triggered. And it may be completely off what Jesus was actually saying. Oh, in fact, oh, I didn't actually say this, did I? Listen to this. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, a great book. Every reader is an interpreter. That is, most of us assume as we read, we also understand what we read. We also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit's or the author's intent. However, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all of our experiences, culture, and prior understandings of words and ideas. And sometimes what we bring to the text, unintentionally to be sure, leads us astray or else causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text. Isn't that true? So now I don't want to freak everyone out and go, well, I can never read the Bible again. But the reality is it's 2,000 years ago where this whole thing came together in a very different culture and context. But it's the living Word of God, and so you don't have to know culture, context, original Greek, and God will still speak through His Word. He's awesome like that. Because He, Jesus is alive. He's the living Word. And He can lead you into all truth. But it's helpful to love Him with, your own, with all of your mind, get the commentaries out, talk to some Bible nerds, and kind of get your head around some of the stuff here so that we don't build horrific theologies that are not reflective of the heart of God. I'm going to give you a video teaser of the Bruxy thing. 
We're talking about the granddaddy of all bad ideas today. God delights in torturing people forever. In fact, we could turn up the volume on that bad idea and say he intentionally creates billions of people through the course of history for the purpose of torturing them forever in order to increase his glory. And this is one of those things that maybe in the Middle Ages was actually a wonderful motivator, and that's why during the Dark Ages it really rose to prominence within Christian theology, that hell is the thing that will motivate people to give their life to Christ, and now it's coming back to bite us in the bum because we've done such a good job promoting it, but today many people are saying, well, if that's your idea of God, I actually want nothing to do with him. And it's backfiring. Now, we don't want to change our theology just because of what's pragmatic. But what if the traditional view of hell actually rose to prominence because of pragmatism? Because it was a handy-dandy motivator to get a lot of people to give the church money and to, and to commit to Christ and to be faithful and to be fearful. And what if we have an opportunity to become more scriptural than that? All right, sorry, it's on repeat. Let's not watch it over and over again. That gives you a teaser. It's outstanding. Um, okay, in the six minutes remaining, <clears throat> uh, let's have a look at this passage. So he's talking about the here and now. Now, does Jesus is Jesus saying you can never get angry? Of course not. Jesus got angry himself. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus looks at the Pharisees. He's just annoyed with them because, again, they're missing the heart of God around the Sabbath in this case. And he looks around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Who's been there. He says, stretch out your hand to this man who's longing to be healed. And he stretches it out and his hand's completely restored. Here's the thing. Jesus' anger led to healing and wholeness and restoration. So, like, there is sometimes an anger that we feel about certain things, but his anger always led to wholeness and healing. Even in the temple when he got angry, it was to restore what the church was always meant to be, a place of prayer and communion with God. And so the danger for us is that for our anger, we can lash out and we can often hurt people. We can get trapped in, in cycles of anger, and we take this anger out on people. Um, I used to lead a, a course once or twice with uh, my old friend Daryl Gardner, and we used to um, teach an anger management class for young people in high schools that had been referred uh, to us through this program. And so we would do this thing called handles. It was about helping these young people handle their anger because they were normally they're lashing out a whole lot. And we would show this, um, this picture of, uh, of what we called the violence cycle or an anger cycle. Can you bring that up, Cass? And, uh, and this is often what happens. Um, so, you know, you're cruising along, we'll start at number two, and then you, you, know, you start to get a bit tense after a little while or some people start annoying you or whatever. Thingify, this is where you objectify. So particularly for these young men, they, they would objectify their partners. So they ceased to see them in their humanity and in their dignity, and they became an object that they were frustrated at, and they ceased to see them in, in human terms. And then they would nut off and they would get violent at, the, at uh, them. And then there would be afterwards deep, deep sorrow, deep, deep regret, a promise not to do it ever again. And then they would cruise for a while, and then tension would build, and then they would thingify, and then the cycle would continue. And, uh, and it's interesting because this is the, uh, on any addiction, and this is it's an, addic you know, an addiction to get those, that, those feelings out, 
and we get used to this whole thing. And any addiction, the cycle applies where you are like, I'll never do that again. And then tension builds, and then you do something you shouldn't do, and then you're like, I'll never do that again. And Jesus wants to step into that cycle and break that cycle. He wants to, to, to this is, he's like, he wants to transform our hearts so that we make the right decisions even when we are feeling really, really wild. And he's calling us to be people of love, not people of violence. And this isn't an easy thing, and it's a lifelong journey, but can I just encourage people, if you're thinking, oh, man, I, I know that's me, there's no like silver bullet, but there is, there, you've got a Holy Spirit who wants to lead you into places of life. So I just invite you to say, Lord, just come and lead me. And, and he, what he'll start doing is make you more self-aware of when those triggers are, and he'll, he'll get you earlier and earlier and earlier in that cycle. You'll get a lot more self-aware so that you can spot when tension's starting to build, and you can do healthy things to help you de-escalate what you're feeling, to process different things. And that's the same with uh, any other addiction as well. Um, and ultimately, Jesus lives this out for himself on the cross. That cycle of, of anger and retaliation gets broken on the cross. Jesus never retaliates in anger to the, the most horrific injustice ever, that has ever occurred on this earth, to, to crucify God himself. All that is love and goodness. He doesn't retaliate with violence. He absorbs it and returns love and mercy and forgiveness, even to those who drove nails through his hands. Like, this is huge. And we are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, not to be people that retaliate in violence or anger, but to be people who through by the grace and the power of God, we absorb it and we return love and forgiveness and mercy. It's a narrow road and it's difficult, but this is how the world gets turned upside down. Dallas Willard um, said this, a leading social commentator now teaches that despair and rage are an essential element in the struggle for justice. He and others who teach this are sowing the wind and they will reap the whirlwind or tornado. Indeed, we are reaping it now in a nation increasingly sick with rage and resentment of citizen towards citizen. And often the rage and resentment is upheld as justified in the name of God. But there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. Isn't that huge? Anger is not, there is a more beautiful way and it's the way of Jesus. The anger is cyclic. It dehumanizes another person and, and doesn't, it may make you feel better in a, for a short term, but it, it, it sets them off in a way where they're now carrying a whole lot of rubbish and pain. And if you've been on the receiving end of either verbal or physical abuse or bullying or anything, you know what I'm talking about. It destroys lives. And if you don't have Jesus, you just want to go get the next guy. And it just, but the way of love breaks that cycle, which is what Jesus calls us to. Jesus in this passage is giving us a revelation of the preciousness of human beings. He means to reveal the value of other people. Every person matters. They are God's son, God's daughter, and it matters not just how we treat them physically, but how we, our posture is in our hearts towards them. And then he says this as we come into land. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. And we got that up there. So basically Jesus is saying, get in there quickly and sort it out. Don't wait. Don't let it escalate. Do everything uh, on your side of the table to sort out this broken relationship. Take the initiative. 
So now the reality in the room this size is going to be people here that know that you've got broken relationships or there's a manga of kind of festering with some stuff. Jesus is like, man, try and sort it out as quick as you can. Why? Because then you step into the kingdom of heaven. If you harbor it and sit in it, Gehenna's there and it just starts destroying your soul and destroying your well-being and destroying your life. Come and step into the kingdom of heaven. Leave Gehenna behind. And so... But does that mean everything's going to be? It's like Jesus isn't naive. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's all going to be sweet and we're going to be best mates forever now. Because it's like, nah, the reality is there's some people who you'll probably be able to be polite with. And, you know, you'd, when you see them in the supermarket accidentally, you're not going to want to punch their, you know, lights out or whatever. That's a win for some of you. And it's like, that's cool. But, and there'd be some people where you take the initiative to try and sort it out and they reject your desire to reconcile to get it right. So Jesus is pointing to this here. And again, Dallas Willard says this, we don't control outcomes and we are not responsible for them, but only for our contribution to them. Does our heart long for reconciliation? Have we done what we can, honestly? Do we refuse to substitute ritual behaviours for genuine acts of love? Do we mourn the harm that our brother's anger is doing to his own soul, to us and others around us? And if so, we are beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and immersed in God's ways. That's a challenge, eh? I mean, that's a, I don't know, again, just being convicted. You guys are lucky. You only get this moment of conviction. I've been convicted all week because I've been kind of you know, thinking about some of this stuff. And, but again, the invitation, on our, what's on our side of the table? What are we in control of that we can try and just reconcile and just make things right? Does that require courage? Yeah. Does it require a love beyond us? Yes, it does. Would he increase and would I decrease? I don't have the love in me to love people that have really hurt me, but I know the one who does. And so, Lord, would you fill me with your love and help me to love people that maybe have really, really hurt me? Let's, uh, let's stay seated as we come into land this morning. I just want to pray over us. and.